You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Well, hello, everybody. Hi. I am starting us off this week. Hi. Hey, how's it going? It's good to see you guys again. How are you? Good, good, good. Yeah. I'm excited to hear what you have today. That's kind of a fun topic. You are starting us off, correct? Yes, I am. Uh, So uh, in 2009, there were kind of a flurry of news articles uh, about a scientific discovery, the way there sometimes are. And there were really exciting headlines. For example, the one in The Guardian said, humans glow in the dark. I'm here for it. We glow in the dark. I'm ready. I want to glow. I want to be a glow. I, I, I feel like I remember this. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So scientists discovered that humans can bioluminesce. Well, this is one of yeah, those things where yeah. in reality, like the research while cool is not nearly as exciting as the headline. Well, of so course, tur- that's how uh, Guardian, I mean, for example, would get there. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is generally how the media operates. Mm-hmm. I hate it. The, the headline's more exciting than the actual stuff, but not always. But, you know, in this case, it turns out that, yes, humans and maybe all living things do emit very, very small quantities of visible light as a matter of course. Right. It's basically the metabolic processes in your body's cells. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just they result in free radicals. Uh, and that can result in certain other molecules emitting a few photons. But, okay. you know, if you take okay. me into a really, really, really dark room, you ain't going to see anything because this quote-unquote glow is uh, like a thousand times too dim for the human eye to detect. Oh No! I was so yeah. excited! I wanted to be my own glow stick. Kind of what I figured, but okay. Yeah. yeah so fair. it seems like you know, probably this doesn't serve any actual function. It's, it's more of a byproduct. But true, visible bioluminescence is a very real phenomenon, as anyone who has seen a firefly is aware. And it is yes. so cool. It's so cool. I love bioluminescence. It is literally so cool. <laughs> and that is what I'm going to talk about today. Oh, I see what you, I see it, what you did there. The cold yeah. and temperature? <laughs> yeah. That's what she's saying. <laughs> but it's okay. also like oh. really neat. Um, Neato. So uh, first of all, how does that even work? Well, bioluminescent organism. And I have to say, that is the most annoying word to type. Bioluminescence yeah. bioluminescent. and yes, bioluminescent. bioluminescent. Are, <laughs> when I was writing up my notes for this show, I was just like, oh, I have to type this word again. Do BL. Yeah, I should have done that. That's how I feel about rate. the word camouflage. Oh, you know, I kind of like spelling camouflage. I always misplaced it. We're, we're going to uh, yes. we'll have to anyway. uh, examine this in some like yeah. other, you know, <laughs> bonus this is, content. This is, a, this is a, a spelling tangent that we really don't need to go down any farther. 
At any rate, bioluminescent organisms have molecules that are called luciferins, okay. which is a pretty cool word. That's pretty, so, pretty neat. Lucifer, if you think of like the devil type of Lucifer, his name that actually was, means light. So yeah. it just means right. molecules that create light. Uh, okay. And it's so these are molecules that can generate light under the right conditions. But there's actually not just one thing called luciferin. It's more of a functional category because the actual oh, okay. chemical structure of these actually varies widely species to species. And in okay. fact, uh, based on how different, for example, firefly luciferin and bacterial luciferin are, it seems likely uh-huh. that this ability evolved independently many times. Oh, that's, that's what I was just going to ask. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Maybe as many as 40 times is what I saw. Oh, okay. That's a 40. lot. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So right. there's a lot of different precise chemical reactions that can take place. But generally speaking, what needs to happen is the luciferin needs to react with oxygen in the presence of a specific catalyst. And a catalyst is just a word for another kind of molecule that makes a chemical reaction go mm-hmm. faster or at all. Um, so this reaction puts the luciferin in an quote-unquote excited state because the oxygen has a lot of energy gotcha. and it kind yep. of chemically transfers that energy to the luciferin, um, and then the light can be emitted. So also depending on which types of molecules are involved, different colors of light are, different, are emitted by different species. Mm-hmm. All right. And yeah, so some are blue, some are more green, some are even yellow or slightly orange. And is the green color, did you, is, in your research you're seeing, is the green color specifically tied to the oxygen? The fact that it's oxygen that's being excited? or No, the, the color is tied to the type of um, catalysts and other molecules involved oh, in the reaction okay. and sort of what, uh, what their excited state emits in terms of photons. Sure, sure. But the oxygen itself is just kind of the thing that... that um, feeds the reaction. Gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so at its base, it's an oxidation reaction, which is what burning wood, yeah, for example, is. Right. Yeah. Creates heat. Uh, yes. Yeah. But in this case, this, the control of the reaction by this catalyst means that almost all of the energy is released as light rather than heat. So it is literally very cool. That's yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I um, love bioluminescent things. It's just, I, I never thought about the chemistry and how it works. Yeah. It's, it's very cool. Mm-hmm. I keep using that word. Oh, it is cool, <laughs> though. It is. It is how cool. How else do you explain it? Oh. And I just wanted to also just briefly distinguish bioluminescence from fluorescence because I think those are easily confused and the colors you wind up with could be kind of similar. Uh, There are various types of organisms that are fluorescent. They glow, but only when they're viewed under certain types of light. And this is a different process. So I remember you mentioned um, platypuses, Rachel, in a previous episode. It's like the platypus. (laughs) Exactly. So... In this case, there's a specific molecule in the organism that can absorb the light that it's getting and then re-emit it mm-hmm. at a different wavelength, a different color, um, which is 
different than producing a light chemically, which is what's happening in bioluminescence. So true bioluminescence is fairly rare on land. Fireflies do it, uh, as do a few other types of insects, some centipedes and millipedes, one type of snail that's known, and some annelids, which are segmented worms. And there are also about 80 known species of fun. (laughs) What? I want to see the snail that lights up. That'd be amazing. I know, right? (laughs) Glowing snail. What's well, cool, if you look at pictures, sometimes it's sort of the whole organism that's, that's glowing in a way, or sometimes it's specific points on its body, like a pattern, almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. <clears throat> uh, but as I think I was saying, uh, there are about 80 known species of fungi, fungi that can also glow. Uh, but uh-huh. it is estimated uh-huh. that about three quarters of species of marine organisms can bioluminesce. I'm sorry. So we, three sorry, quarters? Whoa. Yeah. Three quarters of all of the marine 75 species, species. Yeah. So this is according... I feel like I, I've never heard... Okay. Yeah. Okay. That but, seems way... I've seen a lot of marine life that doesn't glow. So. But we've already talked about a couple that can here on the podcast. I... I we, there's a lot of species out there. I, yeah. I'm assuming Just a to lot clarify, of them are this is small. 75% of the species, not 75% like by biomass or something like that, right? This of is... the species, yes. Okay. okay. That was my understanding. And keep in wow. mind that not all organisms that can bioluminesce are going to do it at all times. Mm-hmm. Sure. They might have specific circumstances under which they can do it. So this is according to a 2017 paper in Nature by Severine Martini and Stephen Haddock, which is a great name if you're <laughs> going to be doing marine research. <laughs> that person knew. A nice nominative determinism. Yep. Yeah, I believe they're of the Monterey Bay Aquarium. But uh, they, they did a survey at different depths. And not too surprisingly, the proportion of bioluminescent organisms increases the deeper down in the water column you go. And by the time you get about uh, below about 3,500 meters, pretty much all the creatures can glow. Now, I will say they have this methodology that's, there's obviously a lot of different types of organisms that you can find and... Not not a lot is known about all of them. So they had mm-hmm. different categories of like, we know this definitely can bioluminesce. We think it probably can based on, you know, its relationships to other species or what we know about its body chemistry. Um, right. The like, maybe we're not sure. And we know it doesn't. So like, I think right. the 76% includes the ones that they're like pretty sure about. All right. But still, it's a lot. I mean, I'll accept it. There's scientific error. So you can imagine that this would be a very helpful feature in the depths of the ocean. Yeah. You can oh, help yeah. you find a yeah, it can help you find a mate. You can help look for food. You can lure food to you. You can startle a predator or prey by suddenly flashing a light. So there's all kinds of things ah. that it's useful right. for. And also some species produce light themselves and others produce it because they have symbiotic bacteria that are bioluminescent. Mm-hmm. Oh wow. Okay. okay. All right. I love that. <laughs> Bioluminescent light is just remarkable overall because, as I alluded to before, it's a cold light. Unlike most light sources that humans experienced until very recently, it quote unquote burns without heat or fire. 
And so it has been an object of fascination for centuries. I mean, I think Aristotle wrote about it, for example. Now we actually have LED lights, which in fact work on a somewhat similar principle. It's called electroluminescence. Yeah, yeah. So instead of a chemical reaction taking place to create the excited state of a molecule, it's an electric current. But other than that, it's actually a fairly similar, similar principle. And, you know, from time to time, somebody gets excited about tapping bioluminescence as a, as a cheap energy source. Mm-hmm. And then if you actually do the calculations on it, it's you know, <laughs> or think about the logistics of it, trying to keep the organisms in their happy place, it, it's just, <laughs> you know, dealing with living things is a you little more difficult than dealing with uh, electronics in a lot of cases. Yeah. Be- be inspired by how to do it. Don't use the organism. Exactly. So it's a very cool phenomenon, not of a lot of practical use for lighting your house, say, but very neat to see. It's so cool very to cool. see. I want to see, I've seen fireflies, obviously, but I would love to see like as much bioluminescence as I could. Like there's bioluminescent waves and like, Oh, I've seen that. I want to see that. It'd be so cool. (laughs) Well, life goals. Yes. Well, when we come back from the break, Kirk is going to have something to tell us about. Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strange by nature. See you soon. So I want to tell you a story about James Smith and Paul Anker. You see, back in 2016, they found themselves somewhere people don't usually find themselves. They were on the Flitcher or Flitchner Ronnie Ice Shelf in Antarctica, uh, which is a shelf of ice that extends across part of the Weddell Sea. Uh, now, I say they found themselves there. It wasn't like a mystery. They wanted to be there. Oh, good. There on oh, purpose. good. Because yeah. uh, getting to an ice shelf in Antarctica, one, is very yeah. difficult. They didn't just, they did just wake up there one day. They were, they were I there would be cause... so concerned if you wo- just woke up there for like what yeah, you were saying. Yeah, that'd be odd. Yeesh. That would be strange. They were there as part of the uh, British Antarctic Survey. Okay. So, uh, they had a pretty cool task. Uh, their plan was to drill an uh, 800 and 90 meter hole through the ice <laughs> using a using a, like a hot water drilling device that was drilled with like water okay uh, and then they were going to go like through the ice and, and then through all the water underneath that to get down and take like a soil core of the seabed okay, okay. Uh, so those who are trying to do the math in your head that means they had to melt through 3,000 feet of ice <laughs> <laughs> No. Wow. Also, before wow. we get too much right. further, Kirk, uh, I, I have to say, all jobs in an, in Antarctica are pretty cool. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs>
That's that's two cool jokes in one show. Okay, I'm just gonna keep on going. So uh, once they got through the ice, though, then they encountered 272 meters, which is almost 900 feet of ice cold water. Now they had done this before previously at another site, so they figured things were gonna go just as smoothly. Right. Uh, and their goal uh, goal, like I said, mm. for creating these holes was to take a soil core sample from the bottom of the seabed, right? Well. Unlike the first hole they right. drilled, though, uh, there was no way to get a soil core from the second hole. Uh, and it was easy to see why, thanks to the uh, like Hero 4 GoPro they had strapped to the drilling rig. They seemed As you to have some terrible luck. Well, I mean, yeah, they wanted to see what was down there, too. Uh, apparently, yeah. the spot they chose to drill was directly over a large boulder sitting on the seafloor. <laughs> there was after oh, drilling through oh, 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 no. <laughs> over like a mile of ice. Oh, oh, uh, oh, they discover, no. oh, we picked we picked the spot with the boulder. Bummer. <laughs> isn't that isn't that special? Oh, that's uh, terrible. <laughs> so that, that's a huge bummer because they, they could not get the sample. However, uh, like I said, there was a camera on uh, this drill rig thing that was going down, and they noticed something strange. Something was living on the rock. What? Oh. Now, before I tell you what was on the rock, I want you to picture where they're drilling. Uh-huh. The borehole they drilled was 260 kilometers, which is 161 miles from the edge of the ice shelf. And remember that the ice shelf is 3,000 feet thick, uh-huh. sitting on 900 feet of water. Yeah. And that water is just a degree above freezing. Can, I, can I tell freezing. you what I think about this? Uh, sure. So it's I think it's pretty cool. Very, very cold. It's very, cold. very yeah. dark. Very and cool. you know, most my understanding is uh, most sea life down at the depths lives on kind of the detritus, more or okay. less of the the production that takes place at the surface because of sunlight, right? right? Absolutely. Yeah, I was just getting to that. You're you're right on. Yeah. So so this so this seems strange, right? Yes. Yes. So it's 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 a super inhospitable place to be because you have to have like Victoria Is said you got to have that food you got to have you got well we'll get there mm-hmm. um and and this is really cold and there's there's no sunlight or anything right um and I I do want to be clear though that life has been found under ice shells before it was not unusual that they found some sort of life we expect most life to be like Victoria said either at the edge of an ice shelf. Um, or very close to it because life depends on primary producers mm-hmm. and primary producers, uh, like things like say phytoplankton, like they need sunlight to grow something that um, and photosynthesizes. Course, exactly. And of course, animals like fish, right? They, they can swim so they can venture under the ice shelf if they want to. Now the record for how far I'm going to use the word inland, uh, from the edge of the ice shelf mm-hmm. that life has been found was actually also in Antarctica under the Ross ice shelf and a survey survey there in 2015 found fish that were 700 kilometers from the edge of the shelf. That's 435 miles away from sunlight. Wow. Now I want to put that in perspective. That means it's dark spot. Yes. Because the deepest spot in the ocean is the Marianas trench. 700 kilometers is 26 times further from sunlight than the Marianas Trench is deep. Oh, wow, okay. Think, so think about it that uh, way. Like, 
we are a long way from Ooh, the nearest sunlight. Okay. Um, so that is, a, that is impressive, but fish, fish can move. Like I said, right? They have fins. They can swim around. So, um, I suppose. Se- yeah. And they can go long distances, but sessile animals are those that cannot move. So things like sponges and barnacles. Mm-hmm. And it has long been held that these animals must only live near the edge of an ice shelf because they're, they're filter feeders, right? And they live off those primary producers or some of the detritus and whatnot, like Victoria was describing. And those things, they live off things that need sunlight. So they cannot be that far from the sunlight. They have to live where other life is found in abundant quantities. So the shocking discovery in the borehole uh, was that the rock they discovered was covered in multiple different forms of sessile life. Uh, So Keep in mind uh, that this rock was 161 miles <laughs> from the ice shelf edge, mm-hmm. uh, but it gets weirder and more impressive. So scientists understand pretty well how water moves under the ice shelf, and the water flow in the area where the rock was is actually going the opposite direction away from, or I guess toward the the, the close edge, right? So that oh, okay, the the nutrients they were getting. We're not coming from the closest edge of the ice shelf. Uh, they believe that the nutrients are coming actually from 1,500 kilometers away at, in, a, in another region. Wow. So, what? These, yeah. Sure. So, these why not? nutrients are coming, these nutrients are coming from super far away. They're not even coming from the closest edge. So, you could essentially imagine that you could, if, if things were coming directly from that closest edge, and that closest edge was 1,500 kilometers away, which is about 1,000 miles. Uh, that's just uh, we Well, we like so to say that amazing. Uh, nature laughs at our categories, and this one is <laughs> or rolling on the, the floor. the unexpected, perhaps? Life yeah. uh, so, finds a way. Finds a way. Life yeah. finds a way. So, and, and you were right, like bacteria. They think there was bacteria, but we're talking about things like sponges, mm-hmm. um, Something that might be a barnacle or something kind of like that. Like they want to do more research to figure out exactly um, what sort of sessile life these things are. Because some mm-hmm. of them could be new things that hadn't been described and whatnot. So you can't just go, oh, I know exactly what that is when I see it. So it's a chance discovery uh, that was not why the researchers were there. So it, it now has scientists rethinking what they thought they knew about life under the ice shelves. And there will now be certainly many more new studies to find out more about these animals and how they can live there. Marine sponges can actually live as long as 10,000 years. What? So it's very likely that, yeah. Hold on. It's what? Likely, You're just going to drop that little tidbit? I'm just going to drop on. that and then walk away. Okay. We'll do, let's do another episode on marine sponges. Uh, they <laughs> can live an incredibly long time. Um, so there's actually, uh, the research paper I was reading on this, uh, the researchers, I thought was really cool. They actually asked the follow-up questions of what needs to be thought of next, which I thought was really cool. Some of the questions they want mm-hmm. to answer include what species are there and are they endemic, meaning they're only, are they only unique to that area? How old are the animal communities and what does that tell us? Um, what exactly is the food source? How common are these communities? Was it a fluke that hit this just this one or is this like on all the boulders under there? Hmm. Um, what does the transport of nutrients so far under an ice shelf mean for our understanding of studying where ice shelves used to be. And the reason this is on there is because we do core samples and then look at um, like how much 
nutrients are found in those core samples to kind of figure out where the ice shelves used to be because the assumption was that these nutrients were not found under ice shelves. So if you're like, oh, there's, there's nutrients here, there must not have been an ice shelf here. And now we're going, oh, mm. shoot, huh. that may not actually, that may be wrong. So now it's kind of questioning all of that. Um, also, sadly, a big question becomes what's going to happen to these communities when the ice melts due to global warming mm. or, or, you know, yeah. water patterns and stuff yeah. change. So that's a big one. Um, all of this came from uh, the article these scientists put out uh, in Frontiers in Marine Science. The article is called Breaking All the Rules, the mm. First Recorded Hard Substrate Sessile Benthic Community Far Beneath an Antarctic Ice Shelf. So... If you want to do a deeper dive yourself, <laughs> no pun intended, <laughs> uh, go ahead and check out. All the out, puns intended. Check what out are you talking that, about? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. I swear. <laughs> uh, go ahead and check out that 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 uh, scientific paper. Uh, it was it was very cool. But I, I wanted to share just a, a cool example of a scientific discovery that was completely on accident. It wasn't what they were looking for, right. and uh, they found it. So it's also a total coincidence. Speaking of coincidence, uh, with Victoria's story. Uh, here we go talking about life under the ocean in the dark. Yeah. Um, There's the connection. Really cool. It's so, it's, you could say it's ice cold. It's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> Let's beat this to death. Oh, that's not. We're going to go to a break. And when we come back, uh, Rachel will have something fun for us. So. Welcome back, everyone. I'm going to take you back to 1951. All right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Got Cold War. Cold War. Uh, poodle skirts. Everybody's, I think everybody's dancing the Lindy. Um, right. So a young black woman goes to Johns Hopkins Hospital because she's experiencing abnormal vaginal bleeding. And upon examination, it was discovered (sighs) that she had a large malignant tumor on her cervix. Yep. Yeah. So she went and got treatment for this, which at the time was radium. That was the top of the line uh, Mm -hmm. cancer treatment at the time. time, Uh, And as was custom at the time, uh, the doctor biopsies her tumor. Um, and her cells go down the la- down to a lab down the hall for research on cervical cancer and things like that. Um, Dr. Gay's tissue lab, uh, which was the lab it was, these cells were sent to, had been trying to gather cervical cancer cells to study in the lab, but they were they all died very quickly. Um, however, these cancer cells did not, and in fact, they doubled the amount of cells every 20 to 24 hours, which is extraordinarily Oof. fast. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a very aggressive cancer. Yeah. yeah. Um, they turned out to be the very first immortal cells and became the most used, one of, in my opinion, one of the most important cell lines in science. Uh, right. Do either of you know the name of the woman whose cells those are? Sure do. Her name was Henrietta Lacks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, uh, quite a story. It yeah. is. Um, it's gotten a lot more attention in more recent years, uh, which is great um, because I'll talk about it, actually. Um, but it, it was. It was Henrietta Lacks. 
uh, her cells go by Shiva. Uh, they take the first two letters of her first name and the flat first two in her last name, and that was the moniker given to this cell line. Um, unfortunately, uh, she did die a few months later at the age of 31 be- due to that really aggressive cervical cancer. Um, but the scientists and doctors at the time didn't tell her family about it. Um, and one of the biggest things that I want to address is that doctors didn't understand or really think about informed consent uh, medicine. At that point in time, you went to the doctor and your doctor might not even tell you what's wrong with you. Uh, you just get treatment, then you get sent home. That was pretty common at that point in time. It had not a lot to do with her race, being a black woman. She wasn't... Um, very well-to-do either. She was fairly poor, uh, and most of the time her and her family, even later on, did not have health in- health insurance or health care available to them. Um, so her cells, Henrietta cells, were taken without her or her family's knowledge, and in fact, they actually didn't get told of the impact of her cells in science or that they were even being used in science until 25 years later when uh, a postdoc wanted to map out the genes of Henrietta's cells as apparently the cells were being were contaminating other cultures and like they were mixing with dust they were small enough that they were going from hands to unwashed hands to other cultures and all of these things and they wanted to they wanted to map out the genes of Henrietta's cells using her family to try to figure out which ones were her cells well, right, and they're like, what are you talking about? They're exactly like that. They called her husband, who was still alive at the time, and this man, unfortunately, only had a third grade education. So he's like, what? What do you, what do you, what do you mean you have my wife alive in a lab somewhere? Like, didn't understand. Of course, now, and because of Henrietta Lacks and her family, um, steps have been taken to compensate to be sure this won't ever happen again. Um, you cannot take biopsies or anything like that without informed consent. You can't have any procedures done without informed consent. Well, um, especially that, and then to to use yes. what you found is yeah. like, just just as big, if not bigger, an issue there. Right. Um, and the Lax family actually now have say. They have partnered and come with to an agreement with Johns Hopkins and the National Institute of Health on who gets to use the cells and their genome. Um, it is something that has been worked upon. And uh, I was, as I was doing research, they actually are in a lawsuit against a big pharmaceutical company that was selling her Henrietta cells for like way, like a ton of money. Like I think a vial of her cells are like 250 bucks at least just a vial which is well and they're nuts. selling millions of those yeah. exactly and um like i said at the beginning this she was at johns hopkins who did offer her the best care that they could and they offered those cells up for free patent free for science they at that time that was just the practice um so they weren't making a profit or anything like that um but the reason why I wanted to bring up Henrietta Lacks and her immortal cells is um, why it's not only to like let people know what exactly happened with her and get her name a little more further out there, but 
this is also weird as all get out because before her there were not any all the cells would die so immortal cells in uh, a, a nutshell um they continuously they are cells that continuously divide and they have an enzyme uh, mutation that actually prevents the telomeres, which are the from shortening. Um, telomeres are the little capper on the DNA strands. So, and that's generally the limiting factor for most cell divisions. It, cert, after you get to a certain length of a telomere, the cell the cell goes through um, cell death, and it can no longer reproduce or divide and go through mitosis. Immortal right, well, cells this, don't that, have so that. Isn't that one of the things where, like, people have said, oh, if we can just get rid of telomeres, then we'll, our cells can live forever and we could be kind of immortal. And it's like, yeah, there's a word for yeah, cells that do then that. Then you it's have a cancer. cancer. You have cancer. Yeah. yeah. That is what is, the, yeah. And, like, these are used in science, but they are cancer cells. Um, they are not normal cells, but they are still right. widely used. Um to give you a little idea, um, they have been in use in from 1953 to 2018. They were cited as being in use in over 110,000 publications of scientific research. Wow. Um, they're the reason why we know mitosis works. We How we know how cancer replicates because of these cells, especially cervical cancer. And it actually provided research into blood cancers as well on how they replicate. These, her cells helped us figure out how viruses infect the body. And by doing that, it actually helped us develop the polio vaccine. And wow. pretty much every vaccine that came after that, uh, including the COVID-19 vaccines. Um, these helped figure out how x-rays impact the body. Um, these were the first human cells to be sent into space. Yeah, <laughs> they were sent on Sputnik to see how our, how our human cells are impacted by oh, the wow. radiation and such in space. Um, how Sputnik didn't, wasn't a... Like, it didn't come back down. I mean, it burned up in the atmosphere eventually, but I wonder how that was useful in any way, shape, or form if it wasn't recoverable. I have no idea. I, I don't know. That's something to look into because that, that doesn't make yeah. any sense. Um, Unless they did it to be like, let's put this up there. Let's see what happens. Um, I might have gotten the name wrong. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was Sputnik. But anyway. Oh, well, you know, Sput Sputnik just basically means satellite, I think. So like it could have been another. Have Maybe been, it was like Sputnik 17 yeah. or something. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that, that would that would make much more sense. Yes. <laughs> so they even used Henrietta's cells, the HeLa cells, to figure out how uh, the HIV infection works um, because the the HeLa cells are not easily infected by HIV. So they were able to use this to help develop drugs and limit the spread of HIV. And because it actually works very similarly with Ebola. So they were able to understand more with um, Ebola and help with the vaccine development there, as well as with HIV. Um, we learned how cells age and their biology and the 
what all the different organelles and everything are uh, with Henrietta cells. Um, and I just want to plug this too. The National Institute of Health actually has a graph of all of what all her cells have impacted, like the different types of study. And it's, right. it's absolutely insane to check it out. And they're all like linked by how many papers and everything have been cited. And it's truly phenomenal. And it's extremely sad that she, there are more cells of hers that are alive and in use today than there ever were in her actual body. But like, the the impact that she's had on science is is truly outlasting and immortal truly yeah, yeah. and i am i imagine probably a lot of our listeners have heard of this book if not already read it but uh mm-hmm. there's a book from i don't know i guess about 10 years ago called the immortal life of henrietta Lacks by rebecca sweet which is a really really yes. good read if you haven't read that check it out yeah it's a solid one i thought i would read a uh, snippet of it for this yeah but that's what i have for you today i'm sorry to bring us down to a sadder note <laughs> well you know it's 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 there, there was some really unfortunate stuff with the way it came about but mm-hmm. ultimately in the end it's a story about how two things one is how chance discoveries can have amazing uh you know results uh, i think both mm-hmm. of our stories were kind of about chance discoveries and also about how you know, a person can actually even keep on contributing to science even after they're gone. This didn't come about initially in the way we would have hoped, but uh, it is really amazing that one person can really have uh, such a profound impact uh, through their cells and not Mm -hmm. necessarily through, like, through their actions, but just through their unique uh, biology. So it's it's really fascinating. And she's still having an impact. Her cells are still used in scientific studies all over the world. Um, and it's just, I find that it's amazing and great that Johns Hopkins and the National Institute of Health have partnered with the Lax family in order to give them more autonomy and ownership over their cells and their genome, which is great. Mm-hmm. That's what I have for you today. <laughs> All right. All right. See you all next week. Thanks for joining us. See See you next week. See you next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.